What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Hi, this is John Davidson. I'm on Gilbert Gottfried's show with Frank. Oh, yes, Frank. Frank is the reason Gilbert is clever. <laughs> John Davidson. Said fuck on Gilbert Gottfried show. <laughs> That's my new favorite song now. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. Our guest this week is an accomplished film director, an Oscar and Golden Globe winning producer responsible for some of the most celebrated and important movies of the last six decades. To read his full list of credits would take up the entire podcast, but we'll try to get through as many as possible. Point blank. They shoot horses, don't they? The Mechanic, Rocky, Rocky 2, New York, New York, The Right Stuff, True Confessions, Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Creed, and The Wolf of Wall Street. He also directed the well-received films like The Net, Life as a House, The Lovely, Night in the City, Home of the Brave, wrote and directed a movie Frank and I have discussed on this show, Guilty by Suspicion, about the infamous Hollywood blacklist. And in 2017... He was presented with the David O. Selznick Life Achievement Award for Producers Guild of America. The artist and performers he's worked with is a virtual who's who of 20th century cinema, including Jane Fonda, Robert De Niro, Barbara Streisand, Al Pacino, Lee Marvin, Robert Duvall, Michael Caine, Leonardo DiCaprio, Kevin Kline, Samuel L. Jackson, George C. Scott, Sylvester Stallone, and even 
Elvis Presley. His latest project is The Irishman with his longtime friends De Niro and Pacino and directed by his frequent collaborator Martin Scorsese. His brand new memoir is entitled Erwin Winkler, A Life in Movies, Stories from 50 Years in Hollywood. Frank and I are thrilled to welcome to the podcast a living legend of the silver screen and a man who once said that he had no reason to believe that Francis Ford Coppola would direct a mafia picture. The pride of Coney Island, Erwin Winkler. Now, here's something that happened to me this morning. I I went to the bank depositing some residual check for a dollar nineteen, and the girl behind the counter, who I you know I dealt with before, uh, she says hello and how are you, and then she's out of nowhere. She says to me, "What does a producer do?" And I figured I've been in the business a number of years and known a number of producers, and I couldn't answer the question. So I ask you, Erwin Winkler. That's a good question. <laughs> it's uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book, because uh, uh, it could be anybody from some guy who or some woman who shows up and puts up a couple of million dollars for the making of the movie, or it could be somebody who really starts with a script or an idea and develops a script and puts together all the elements to make a movie, uh, casts it, uh, find the financing, and and then uh, ultimately uh, gets a studio and markets the film. Or he could be, I don't know, Madonna's hairdresser's brother uh, who somehow got in and, and put his name on the film. Uh, when I started out basically in the uh, late 60s and through the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, it was usually just one producer, or in our case with Charter Finkler, it was Bob Charter and I as a team. But there were never the list of eight or ten or twelve producers, and who knows how many executive producers. But I think what's happened is the the misunderstanding of what a producer's role is is linked to uh, the handing out of uh, producer credits, uh, like it was candy in a in a giveaway store. Um, I always wondered, and now I'm starting to see it in the in the Academy Awards ceremony, how it how it comes like at the Tony Awards where they give a best pick best play mm-hmm. award, and there's a people on the stage that I'm sure uh, their only uh, reference was to write a check and then probably get two opening night tickets and probably, probably never read the play. And it's not quite that bad in in the film business, but it seems to be getting there because. I did. Uh, uh, I produced a film called Silence uh, that Marty Scorsese mm-hmm. made. A very, very fine film with Adam Driver and uh, uh, just uh, Liam Neeson. It's a really, really marvelous, marvelous film. And a guy come came along and he said, "You know, I'll give you." We were we were financing it independently, and a guy came along and said, "You know, I'll give you five hundred thousand dollars, which is just a pittance on the budget, but I got to be an executive producer." So we needed the $500,000 and gave him credit as an executive producer. So what happened is, in the old days, the studios financed the movies 100%. And in doing so, they maintained the, I guess you might call it the dignity 
of the producer credit. But nowadays, most of the films that I've been involved with, and a lot of people are involved with, are independently financed, and that's the reason the people financed the movie, so they could see their name up there on the screen. So, executive and associate producer, I've heard, like, you could take a homeless man off the street. Just, and they have, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can name a few, but I don't want to get sued. But you you are definitely not that kind of producer. You're well, not a check writer. Thank you. As, well, as you could. But wait, what happened is, in order to answer the question about, oh, about 1985 or 86, I decided that I would start keeping notes uh, to show what a producer actually does. Uh-huh. So what I would do at the end of the day, I would say, well, I had a conversation with so-and-so, or I had lunch with Michael Keaton. I saw Michael Douglas and we talked about a script, and I, and I and I kept this diary for you know twenty thirty years, and then about two or three years ago, I asked my assistant to type it up and put it in some form, and I gave it to a friend of mine, and uh, uh, his his name is Jason Epstein, a very famous uh, uh, film, uh, book editor, and uh, Jason said, you know, it's really fascinating. I stayed up all night reading in it. it was, but after a while, you get tired of reading about so-and-so is late for lunch and so-and-so didn't come for lunch or so-and-so came for lunch but he had nothing to say or so-and-so, you know, and so he said, why don't you put it in a narrative form and let's find out how you started in the business, not just what you did day to day. Uh, So that's how the book turned out. You retained some of that too in the Guilty by Suspicion chapter. That's, That's the chapter where you went into the diary. Yes, making I, I wanted to. I wanted to show that the how the how the whole project started. So I kept some of those diary notes, and even even in a couple of pages, I think it gets a little boring. But uh, maybe you didn't feel that way. I, I didn't know. think so. I mean, it was just it's it's like as I said to you outside, it's an endurance test. I mean, you have Hackman, you have Michael Douglas, you have Michael Keaton. You're going to give it to Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. You're going yeah. around and round and around, and then the money falls out, and then the money comes back, and then all. But ultimately. Bob De Niro says he'll do the movie, and the movie gets made, yeah. and you're often having a great you know, year of making a movie with a great actor and a story you want to tell. Yeah. But there is, there is a happy ending uh, when you actually make the movie. It's not a happy ending when you make the movie and it doesn't turn out so good, but I kept that down to a minimum in the book. I tried to keep you know, <laughs> how many bad movies there are. You're there brave are to mention them. You, you mentioned... Uh... Since you don't want to mention a bad film. You can. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Revolution yes. with Al Pacino. Right. Well, what happened was we had a really, I was fascinated that, first of all, there had been very, very few films about the American Revolution. Yeah, not many. Uh, so there was Drums Along the Mohawk and a couple others, but not many. So I thought, you know, uh, I had this kind of idea that fit in with the Vietnam War that basically what would happen to a man who is uh, forced to fo- follow his son who had been drafted or who enlisted in the army and what happens to the family, what happens to the soldier, what happens to the father. And maybe it had something to do with my own relationship with my boys. And uh, I had that Robert Dillon uh, wrote a really, really good script and then I made some really terrible mistakes. I really, really screwed up badly. <laughs> I mean, why do I hire a British director to do a movie about the American Revolution you when the British lose, obviously? <laughs> so that was my first mistake. Then I agreed to shoot it in England. 
Now, look at it again. How stupid can you be? <laughs> I had an American Revolution shoot in. And so, by the way, I, I shouldn't have been surprised when I got a lot of hostility when, when I started to shoot the movie. Uh, and, uh, I, and it was financed by a British company. So basically, it was very, and, but what happened is, Hugh Hudson, who had a great visual sense, he had done Tarzan and he had done that, Chariots uh, of Fire. Chariots yeah. of Fire, which an was Oscar. an Academy Award winning movie. Uh, but also, that was a very British film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't have an American sensibility. And I he was see. a very nice guy, but he, he, I think he instinctively knew he was in the wrong place also because he spent his time really setting up these incredible shots of cannon going off and soldiers marching in these stupid ways that they, they did in those days and, and the American guerrillas and the cruelty of it all. And I think he just couldn't find that key that you need. And Al, who is a, a, whose life is acting and he's a you know, great actor, uh, and the vision of Al trying to get Hugh, Hugh Hudson's attention so they can talk about what his character needed and had to do, uh, and you was busy kind of getting the cannons all ready to shoot. So, um, and then, oh, the weather was terrible. We were in, a, in, in the worst part of England, the northern part of England. Um, it rained all the time, so the schedule was wrong. I mean, we couldn't live by the schedule, so the money got short. It was, and uh, so what happened is that you couldn't get a good meal in this little town in England. So... <laughs> Margo and I, we, we went... And for a New Yorker, that's unacceptable. Oh, especially... Yeah, right. <laughs> so what we did is when the, when, the, when the driver took the film into London to get the dailies printed, we used to have him stop off at uh, one of the markets and bring back food so, they couldn't get, so we didn't have to eat only frozen peas. <laughs> and uh, so the crew was a little jealous of us eating kind of, uh, you know, frankly, much better than they were. Um, so it was not a happy experience. And it was not Al Pacino happy. got pneumonia. He got pneumonia and I got sick, but I got sick in the head. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, Erwin, to, to your credit, you opened the chapter on Revolution by putting in the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards, winner of 1985. Well, you win all kinds of awards sometimes in the Stinker <laughs> Awards. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, and that explains something about movies, is that your description of a father following his son into battle and how it affects, I think, wow, that sounds like a great movie. I'm glad I didn't ask you for the money. (laughs) (laughs) You ever done an interview before where the first thing they brought up is revolution? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why are we talking about Raging Bull or Good (laughs) We'll get to him for sure. I just want to talk about you being from Coney Island. Gilbert's yeah. also Gilbert's neck of the woods. And you worked on the boardwalk. I mean, the yeah, book that was my first job. At, I, I was in high school, and in the summers, most of the either you hung around on the beach or you got a job, and I was always kind of motivated to work. So I got a job uh, at a, at a, on the boardwalk on a bumper car ride where, you know, where people have these sure. electric cars. Yeah. And Annie Hall. They bump into each other, and yeah. well, my job was to separate them, you know? which really taught me something that I used later in life as a producer because everybody in Hollywood is always fighting and bumping into each other. You need somebody to kind of separate them and keep them apart and keep them calm. So I, I got a good lesson. And you just escaped to the movies every, every chance you got. Yeah, we went to yeah. a lot of movies, and uh, w- there were two big theaters in Coney Island. Uh, one 
uh, showed like the MGM movies, and that's when I saw Gone with the Wind. And you, you remember know, the names of those theaters? I'm wondering um, if they were still there when Gilbert was. I don't know. I I, I can't, don't remember. Yeah. But one, there were two. They were both on Surf Avenue down there, like. 19th Street or 18th Street. Does that ring any bells, Gil? Right in that avenue. No. And there were those big, you know, thousand-seat theaters that you, you know, now, now yeah. they're a 10 multiplex. I know. Yeah. Uh, and then on, on, on Friday nights, we Friday nights with the MGM, we, and then Saturday nights we used to see the, like the Warner Brothers movies, and it was, uh, you know, more of the guys together. Um, on Friday night it was the romance movies, and that's when you took a date. And, and just talking about movie theaters is something Frank and I discuss a lot here. And I always get depressed because I think now talking movie theaters is like saying vaudeville. Soon. Well, you know, my, my uh, uh, model, my, my wife's mother and father were vaudeville performers. Um, actually, uh, her mother uh, performed Beethoven's Violin Concerto while she was doing a backbend on her toes. Wow. That was vaudeville. <laughs> And her father did a sand dance. You know what a sand dance is? Sure. You put sand yeah. on the stage. And oh, you yes, shuffle yes, yes, sure. yes. Well, I've talked to, I mean, uh, some of the, uh, on Creed and Creed II, uh, both directors were 29 years old when we started, Ryan Coogler uh, in, in Creed. And um, they, the, these directors, when I said, they said, what did, you know, what is, where's Margaret? They all like her and all. And, and they, when they found out that her mother and father were performers, and I would say they were in vaudeville. They had no idea what vaudeville was. Unbelievable. Oh. The term didn't even mean anything to them. That's incredible. Wow. Are, are you surprised by that? I am surprised. They didn't know because the word Because they're, they're in show business. They didn't I know the I think they would have just picked yeah, it up somewhere. They didn't know the word vaudeville. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and the places where they were watching movies were former vaudeville houses. Most many, of them many were, cases. sure. That's where the word Nickelodeon, you should pardon the expression, comes from. You gave us a segue there, but we won't take it. (laughs) (laughs) I gave you the chance. Now now to show that you actually have made a good movie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think they're all in the intro. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Raging Bull. Okay. Terrific film. Thank you. And I think you said that you had so much, you had a lot of freedom with Raging Bull because they were all concentrating on Heaven's Gate. Oh, Heaven's yes. Gate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Heaven's Gate was a big, a very expensive, over-budget film that the studio was really uh, uh, very, very in, uh, upset about and very involved with. So they uh, they kind of let us alone. And we had done Rocky for them, which was such a big uh, financial and critical success. It won Best, Best Picture, Picture yeah. Award. And so they, they kind of had a lot of confidence in, in Bob Chartoff and I and what we were doing. So they kind of let us alone. And we made the picture really the way we wanted. Was, uh, was, there, a, was there a small threat involved? Uh, well, what happened was uh, they had no intention of making Raging Bull. They, they didn't want to make it. They, they thought that Jake LaMotta character was a, uh, as, they, as they said in a meeting with Bob De Niro and Marty Scorsese and I, they said to Bob De Niro, why do you want to play this man? He's a cockroach. So that's how they looked on it. They, they really didn't have any faith in it. Um, and we said, okay, well, maybe so, but we're not going to make Rocky Two unless you make Raging Bull. So that was the kind of deal we made. And and I think you said the original script was a very stock cliche fight script. I don't think I said cliche, but I think it was. Uh, it didn't have passion. 
it was structurally very, very finely done, but I don't think it had the passion. And what happened was Marty and Bob went off and they went down to uh, the Caribbean to a little island um, and they checked into a hotel and they spent three weeks just living the script, um, going over the scenes, doing the dialogue for the scenes. And they came back with this film you see with all the passion that you see in the film. Have two executives ever been so wrong about a movie? Have, has history ever proven two yeah. executives? Well, so, I mean, the, that's the, it's not the first bad I decision. know, but I mean, when you, when you consider how revered and, and yes. highly regarded yeah. Raging Bull is, I mean, you know. But by the way, the same thing about Rocky. That's film of the decade. Yeah, same thing yeah. about Rocky. Yeah. Studio didn't want to make it. We had to drag them to the starting post. Yeah, as long as you're talking about Rocky, I just want to ask a couple of questions sure. about that. I mean, the luck involved. You know, and obviously luck plays a role in in the success of all of these situations. But the timing that he was he had he had originally when he came in, you took the meeting. It was a meet and greet with an actor you'd never heard of. And you know, why and, are we meeting and with this guy? And we're not casting anything either. Right. So. We're not casting. Why are we meeting with this guy? Yeah. He gives you the other script. He gives right. you Paradise Alley exactly to read, which was under a different title. Right. And then and then as an afterthought, oh, I've also got this boxing idea. Right. And the luck of that you and Bob Chardoff, your partner, were. Thinking about doing a boxing picture. Yes, just coincidentally. Just coincidentally. And so, the second magical coincidence was you had that special deal with UA. Right, where, where we could put a picture to them and force, force them to make right. a film. Yeah. So he walked in the right room he walked at the, in right the right time. time. And it certainly was the right time for us. But you know what? We made the movie. We made it cheaply. We shot it in 28 days. The average movie is about 50 days shooting, so almost half the time the ordinary movie shoots. And we put it together... And uh, we hired Bill Conti to write the music. We found him in a piano bar in Venice, Italy. Wild. Uh, and he was the cheapest guy on the, around. So we said, okay, you, you get the job. And he wrote this uh, uh, score. And uh, we, the editor put it on the training sequence and then put it on the ending. And we said, oh, my God, this is something more than we thought. We thought we were just making... This little movie that was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Um, the studio had said to us, "Wait a minute, why would you want to make a movie about a broken-down fighter who is in love with an ugly girl who sells birds, who loses uh, the big fight, and he loses the big <laughs> right. fight? You want to shoot in Philadelphia? Who goes to Philadelphia? <laughs> it's the Friday night fights. Nobody's watching the fights on television. Why would they pay to go see it in a movie? And you want to star who?" Sylvester Stallone? Right. What do you think, we're crazy? Right. So that was their attitude, you know? Did they offer and, him $250,000 yeah, to let it go? Yeah, they went around us and they offered him $250,000 to sell them the script so they didn't have to make it. Uh, or they wanted, or if they had to, they would have made it with like Burt Reynolds or somebody, but certainly not Sylvester Stallone. And Sly said, no, no, Bob and Irwin promised me that I would star in it and I'm not going to give it up. Stuck and to his guns. Out. Good yeah. for him. Good for him. He believed in himself, which is what the movie is about, really. Tell, tell Gilbert that Patty Chayefsky story, too, oh. before you jump off Rocky. Well, what happened was uh, there were five really, really good movies uh, nominated. In those days, there were only five films nominated for an Academy or whatnot, like, not like today when you could be up to ten. Uh, so the five nominated films were really, really... Uh, All the President's Men, a great, great mm-hmm. movie. Taxi Driver. Another great movie. Network, I mean, you can't get much better than Network, right? And Bound for Glory, which is okay. Yeah, not, not as good. good. Yeah, good movie. And Rocky. Uh, we didn't think we had a chance to win, but we were the, the favorite and because uh, uh, we, we had won the Golden Globe. 
Anyhow, at the at the Los Angeles Film Critics Award, they voted, and we were at the uh, ceremony. And when they announced it, and I was standing next to Patty Chesky, who was this great writer of Network, and uh, uh, when they announced that Rocky and Network were tied, that's the best winner. I turned to Patty Chesky, I put up my hand, I said, "Congratulations!" He said, "I hope you die." <laughs> I knew you'd like that one, Gil. <laughs> so the competition is always there. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and you paid for the new ending yourself. You would, yeah, you would well, the studio, out of your the studio wouldn't pay for the ending because they felt the film was good enough. But it, we knew that when the fight is over, that everybody was up. But then when they walk out of the arena and it's dirty and dusty and he lost the fight, it had no passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sly rewrote this, the ending so that uh, uh, Adrian comes into the ring and he says, "Yo, Adrian, I love you," and they embrace and the music swells and we cut, we hold on that. Uh, so he, so we went to the studio and said, "We want to reshoot the ending." He said, "No, no, no. If you want to do it, it's your money. You do it." So we said, "Okay." We would put up our own money, but we didn't want to put up a lot of money. So what we did, we hired twenty five extras because we had to fill up the. Uh, as she's walking from the back of the arena to the ring, we had to go sure. through a lot of people. So we said to the 25 extras, okay, everybody bring a hat and a coat. So the first 20, you stand on this side, you <laughs> you take off your hat, you put on a hat, you take off your coat. And then we cut and we went to the next section and we moved them up. It said, now you stand in the back, you stand in the front. <laughs> I mean, we, That's great. It's the same people in every cut, but we just changed the ones who stood in the front and everything else. And with, given the budget, who were the people in the big arena scenes? How did you fill well, the, the seats? Well, the big arena scene, we had a, a more massive problem that we managed to. What happened is we couldn't afford because the big, was, you know, you, you do yeah. a fight, you got to have a lot of people there. So we had to fill it up. And uh, so what we did is we went to a an assisted living home <laughs> and we bust these that. elderly folks in. <laughs> and what happened is. <laughs> to keep their attention, we would every hour we would auction off uh, a lottery of a television set, a little pile of television. That's great. And we would give them snacks all day long. So now they I'm going to look closer at, at Rocky. But at four o'clock in the afternoon, we had a, they needed their meds, so we had to put them back on the bus <laughs> and send them home. <laughs> That's great. And it's funny. Good and tricks. You talked about finding the composer and. That score is a part of the culture. Sure is. Yeah, that's going. To, the, the, the Bill Conti also wrote the score for the right stuff. Yeah, and good that one. is a great. And he won Academy Award for best score, and that's a great stuff. But what happened was, we were looking for a conductor for a composer before we hired Bill. And uh, my wife and I were in a restaurant in Paris, and we had been introduced to Vangelis, who is the man who won an Academy Award for. Uh, the U. Hudson movie. Yeah, Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire yeah. with that great, great score. Yeah. So we're in this restaurant, and he realizes that he was basically, you know, auditioning for a job. So uh, we started talking, and I said, "Well, what do you what do you think this movie needs? What kind of score?" He said, "Let me show you." And he had all these wine glasses and water glasses on it. He actually played us to propose score on the glasses. He would rub the top of the glass. And the one with the red wine had a little different sound. The one with the white wine had a little different The one with the water that was half full had a different sound from the one that had water with the whole. So I heard that score. We didn't hire him. (laughs) 
one of the acts in Broadway Danny Rose. Yes, the woman yeah, points right. the glasses. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> Boy, the tricks of movie making, Irwin. Oh, yeah. I'm going to look closer at Rocky now and see oh, if yeah. I can see those, see those seniors oh, in yeah. the crowd scenes. What were the auction of <laughs> TVs? This is a portable TV so TV. they can take them back to their room. <laughs> you know, they cost like a hundred bucks. <laughs> And and you said um, De Niro. Well, De Niro is like famous for like just going crazy to get the character right, and and that he he trained for Rocky, no, Raging for Bull. Raging Bull. Not Rocky, Rocky. He trained for Raging Bull. Yeah. Oh yeah, he, he trained. He lost a lot of weight, and um, actually he was really really good at. They they even Jake even arranged for him to do. Uh, one or two professional fights, a couple of rounds, uh, and he was able to, you know, there was no decision or anything, but he was able to get in the ring with professional fighters, which is not easy. Uh, uh, even when we did Rocky IV, uh, Sly uh, got hit by one of the, one of the uh, uh, I think it was in, in when we were rehearsing and ended up in the emergency room because he almost broke his yeah. ribs. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, what you see in any fight movie is misses, but they're close misses, and so, you know it's so easy to move your head in the wrong way and get hit in the jaw. And if it's from a professional fighter, you know it's like a pitcher in a professional. If you watch the the Yankee pitcher, you don't want to stand in the way of a ninety five mile an hour fastball, especially if he's wild. Especially if right. he's wild. Right. So uh, <laughs> that happens, and uh, uh, the, the the in making a fight movie, it's almost like making a musical because you have to re- re- choreograph. All the fight scenes, all the moves, where they're going to be, where the camera's going to be, because if they're fighting, you got to, you can't show the camera, obviously. So, it's it's a very complicated process. And timing and luck again playing a role. And Les Gilbert pointed out because the UA executives were so obsessed with what was going on with Heaven's Gate, they let you alone exactly. a little bit while making Raging yeah. Bull, and you guys had a. But little- look, you know, when we were we when we were shooting Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. You know the famous scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci says, "You think I'm funny?" Sure. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That was that. Joe came up with the idea. It wasn't in the script, and he had heard about it, and he talked to Marty about it. Marty, who's always open to ideas, said, "Okay, let's rehearse that. Let's get it down." And so they rehearsed it, and then we set it up, and we 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 were shooting right here on uh, on uh, uh, a nightclub on Broadway. I think it's like 47th or 48th Street on the second floor. And uh, that, that day, the head of the studio, Terry Semmel, the head of Warner Brothers, showed up. And he looked around and he said, what, what are you guys shooting? He said, I don't remember that in the script. I said, no, no, it's, we came up with it yesterday and rehearsed it and it's really going to be great. He said, I, I, I don't, we, we, we're paying for that and you're doing it. And <laughs> so he said, well, then... Uh, Okay, uh, it's too late to stop you now, but you're supposed to do a scene in Florida where the guy goes into a, where 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 they go down to Florida and throw a guy into a lion's cage because he owes them money. If you remember the scene, sure. Tampa was, but he said oh, you can't go to Florida because you spent all the money on this. So we scratched our head, and well, we shot that Tampa Bay scene, uh, the, not Tampa Bay, it's football, the the, the Tampa Zoo. In Queens, we took a lot of greenery, and it was nice. Threw up a sign, and we and we put up a sign <laughs> said Tampa's Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> <And> okay. <laughs> 
funny. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, it's funny, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Yeah, Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. He's... Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Right. Funny how? What? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? well, let me understand this, because I you know, maybe it's me, I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... You know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet? Frankie, was he shaking? I wonder about you sometimes, Henry. You may fold under questioning. <laughs> We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But there, the studio would would have stopped sure. us if they had come in earlier in the day, you know, because they didn't, you know, they, 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 they and properly so, they're always concerned about what thing, things are going to cost. But generally... They're pretty good once they get on board. And but there it would go. have killed what is arguably the most memorable scene yeah, in the whole is. film. It is one of the and great, great yeah. scenes. Yeah. They didn't want Ray Liotta. No, I didn't want Ray Liotta. <laughs> Forget about them. <laughs> I, sa- I said to Marty Scorsese, you know, I trust you and all that, but I think maybe why don't we keep looking for somebody better? He said, no, this is the guy. And I kept kind of trying to talk to him, meet with this guy, meet with this guy. And he was very, he, he would meet with him. And he said, no, no. I want, I want, hey. So my wife and I were having dinner in a restaurant in, in uh, Pacific Palisades in California. And sure enough, Ray Liotta was sitting at another table having dinner. Just a, a coincidence. And he came, walked over to my table. And he says, can I see you outside? Well, it sounded like I was going to be having a fight with the guy, you know. <laughs> can I see you outside? I'm doing a gangster movie, sure. Uh, and he went out and we sat, we sat for a few minutes. And he really just sold me on how he would do the film and, and why he was the right guy for about it. About that. So I came back. I called up Marty right away. I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. He's the guy for it. But you know what happened? Look, I think the perfect casting uh, is Sam Shepard playing Chuck Yeager perfect. in the right stuff, right? I didn't want him either. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you all this. I should be taking credit to I'm taking blame. <laughs> Well, the studio was trying to push Tom Cruise and Madonna on you for Henry and Karen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They they insisted that Tom Cruise was perfect for Henry and Madonna. But we we shut that down. But on on the right stuff, 
I kept saying to Phil Kaufman, you know, we can get like Bob Redford or somebody. Really, this is a great role. He said, no, no, that's the guy. And he was smart. He he just waited. He said, okay, send me anybody you want. I'll talk to him. And he kept waiting and waiting. And then it was like a week from shooting. And I said, Phil, we got a cast here. He says, Sam Shepard. I said, okay. And he was great. Yeah, he's great, great in that in picture. Movie, yeah. You know what great. gets me about um, Goodfellas is that, you know, it ends with how it did in real life with him going into the witness protection right. program. And yet, uh, he he lived to a you know fairly good age. Yeah, he was in his seventies. Yeah. yeah, and he was surprised that he never got whacked. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was that's... as surprised as anybody. Well, you know, he he was kicked out of the uh, the uh, program. You know, and and well, yeah. what got me is he was like like a regular on the Howard Stern yep. show. Yep. Yep. So I mean, it I would, would never be, have started a car. He was yeah. one of the, they, they don't usually uh, kick people out of the witness protection program, but he got kicked out. Amazing, yeah, because he was selling drugs and he couldn't couldn't help himself. Yeah, but he came up to see me a couple of times before uh, he passed away, and he was always very very lovely. Not the same. He had changed dramatically over the course of the thirty years and since he was a kid. I want to point out your wife's fine work in that well, picture as yeah. as uh, as Maury's wife. Yeah, Maury's very uh, yeah. very anxious <laughs> wife. Yeah, she is, she is. She's great in that. She's also great in King of Comedy, yeah, which I didn't have anything to do with. Talking about outside, yeah. she was the receptionist yeah. who was giving him the runaround That's in right. King of Comedy. Yeah. Very yeah. memorable. Um, this is the thing about Goodfellas that I want to bring up is how disastrous the preview was, the first screening. Yeah, we, we put the film together and we were quite happy with it. And... Uh, we took it to Encino for a preview, and uh, uh, in the first scene, when uh, uh, Joe Pesci's got this knife that's about 10 feet long, and he's stabbing the guy in the trunk, and they're shooting him, uh, I think his name was Vincent, the actor, and... Uh, oh, Frank Vincent. Frank yeah. Vincent. Yeah. Who passed away just he recently. He did, last yeah. year. Yeah, year before. Uh, well, at that scene, 32, I counted him, 32 people... Got up from this seat and walked out <laughs> of the theater. Counted them. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I thought it would never stop. So I didn't want to keep Oh, my God. And by the time the film was ended two and two hours and 20 minutes later, the place, the, the only people hanging around were my wife and I and Marty Scorsese. And, you know, <laughs> even the studio executives wanted to leave. You thought, what do we got on our hands yeah. here? Yeah. So, uh, but we, uh, what happened was, and then we had a postmortem the next day and they tried to, cut the film to ribbons and take this out, take that. And, and Marty is great. He said, let me look at it. Let me see. Let me see. And uh, we were very cooperative, but didn't do anything. He <laughs> kept the film exactly as we wanted. And um, the film, you know, is now, a you know, a classic. I have three words for you, and I don't want to disparage the Academy because you have an Oscar. But the three words, the three painful words are dances with wolves. How about ordinary people? How about ordinary people? That's also wait. <laughs> well, how two about, painful words. How about the the uh, the Deborah Winger cancer movie that? Uh, oh, terms the, of endearment, which beat the right stuff. Yeah. So so as long yeah, just for our listeners to bring yeah. our listeners up to speed, ordinary people defeat raging bull for right. best picture, and somehow dances with wolves. Beat uh, good fellas, and right stuff was bitten bitten. Good by, heavens. Uh, yeah. And I I really like <laughs> I really like how you call it. The Deborah Winger cancer picture. <laughs> it's a pretty good movie. I kind of enjoy it. I, I won't deal with it. You know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Is that Lufthansa case still open, an open investigation? As far as I know, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Well, you know, they're going to find somebody's DNA, who, but who's no role on why, because everybody involved in that has been is dead. 
either killed by themselves or yeah. killed, you know, killed by the mob or just died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can we talk about Guilty by Suspicion? Yes, your, we your, can. Your, oh, your, yeah. your first picture as a director. Yeah. And, and a, an important movie. Thank you, thank you. A I'm movie that needed to be made. Uh, what happened was I didn't know much about the, the, the black Hollywood blacklist at all. I had, as a kid, I had seen the McCarthy, all the army hearings, but that was later on, and I really didn't know what was going on with the, the House on american Activities Committee, which, by the way, if you're interested in the politics of it, what happened was it was really, really uh, brought to life by the Truman administration, by a Democratic administration. What happened was when China became communist, the Republicans attacked the Democrats as right. being easy on communism yeah, and tough. letting China, one of the great allies during the Second World War, become, communism, become communistic. Uh, so the Truman administration, in response to that, to show how tough they were on communists, started the House on American Activities Committee uh, and the hearings. And, and obviously Hollywood was a great... Uh, place to go to for uh, communists because there were some communists there, yeah. but also the the names you 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 know you can get Robert uh, uh, Stack or somebody to come up and testify or uh, uh, sure. Ronald Reagan to testify. Yeah. So you got names to you really uh, enforce the publicity of it. Uh, so I, what happened is when we were shooting around midnight, there was a, a, a we hired a director. To do a, to play an nightclub owner, and this director uh, uh, was a Hollywood blacklisted director that had moved to Paris and lived there for twenty years. Mm -hmm. And he started telling me stories about the blacklist. Ultimately, I wrote the script uh, about the Hollywood blacklist and decided it was very. It became uh, very personal to me. I did a lot of research. I felt it was a really interesting story, and I didn't want to hand it over to a director to do. It. I wanted to do it myself. So I. I went through the whole process of trying to get it financed and cast, and uh, that's the marathon we were talking about yeah, in the book. And 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 I left those sequences of how I get, went from a producer to a director in daily diary form in mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. You can actually see all the crazy moves that go on. All in, the lunches in, you took with all the agents, yeah, all trying the to agents get, get and the damn all thing the cast. actors and all the studio people to try to get it made. Uh, Ultimately, we got it made and made with Bob De Niro and Annette Bening. And uh, it turned out to be uh, uh, one of the few films uh, about the Hollywood blacklist. There's a couple of others. Uh, uh, there was one that Woody Allen. Oh, the Martin Ritz movie, The yeah, Front. Yeah, The Front, where he played the man who wrote the scripts for yeah. the Hollywood blacklist. Uh, but I wanted somebody, I wanted the movie to be about an innocent because the whole theory of how the House on American activities work was kind of very ingenious and 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 almost criminal and ingenious. What happened is you would be called in uh, to a room. There would be an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. There would be probably an income tax agent also there to scare the hell out of you. And they would say to you, we have somebody told us that you were at a, a meeting at somebody's house three years ago, and there were a lot of talk about communism there. And uh, we want you to give us the names of all the people that you can remember that were at that house. And you'd say, well, if I name those people, they could lose their jobs because they get blacklisted as being communists. And they say, well, if you won't give us their names, it means you're not patriotic. So you must be a communist. So you'll get blacklisted. Mm -hmm. So you can't... There's, 
there, somebody said there there are no villains and there are no heroes. There are just victims. All victims. And, yeah. and that's really what it comes. Well, we had Lee Grant here, and she wound well, she up was she wound fine, up in Red yeah. Channels because yeah. she because she spoke lovingly uh, and defensively of an actor who had passed away. Oh yeah, that she that's had all a, you needed. She had a friendship with. Yeah, that's all you had. That's all you needed. So it was terrible very. Uh, it, it was a terrible part of uh, what was going on in America at the time, and people committed suicide. Uh, uh, people couldn't work. They, they and I included a lot of that. Those incidents in the. Uh, uh, yeah, well, you story. used Larry Park's actual testimony exactly. at one point, yes. and the, the Patricia Weddick character is based on Dorothy Comingore, exactly, who yeah. to our listeners is Susan Cain in From, uh, Citizen in Kane, Citizen yes. Kane. And, and a tragic Frank, life. Yes. Frank and I were discussing the actor that Robert De Niro. Well, that was Craig Smith, if yeah. I have the name right. They said they sent De Niro sent you the actor. Now, what happened was an actor came in. Bob called me and said, "See this actor. He's a kind of an interesting uh, guy." And uh, so the actor came in, and I said, "How come? Uh, where do you know Bob De Niro from?" And he said, "Well, um, Elia Kazan." Um, work with my father, and uh, Elia Kazan called Bob De Niro for me and arranged for, because Bob had done the last tycoon with Bob. That's right. With, with the Kazan, and they were friendly. So uh, I said, okay, I, I'll find something for you. Sure. And uh, and he had good credits and all that. And I said, well, where's your father now? Because I said, maybe I'll give his father a, a part and I'll find something for his father. He said, oh, my father died. I said, oh, that's too bad. He said, yeah. He committed suicide. I said, well, why did he commit suicide? He said, he was blacklisted and couldn't work, so he killed himself. I said, well, who, who gave his name? He said, Elia Kazan. There you go. Wow. Yeah. How, that, how torn were you uh, during that, that, that controversial moment when Kazan was getting the honorary Oscar and half the know, audience stood up I, and the other half the audience protested? I, I, uh, I like Kazan's work I enormously. Yeah, I mean, he's one of too. the great, great uh, American directors or worldwide directors. I think uh, on the waterfront you don't do better no. and facing a crowd. Sure. I mean, just look through that list of great, great films. So I think you have to honor a man uh, not for his politics but for his work. It's uh, uh, look today in the in the in the area of uh, of uh, Me Too movement. Uh, I don't think uh, you should be barred from looking at. Uh, Michelangelo's work because he uh, seduced a lot of young boys. Of course. That's right. Everything I, I in remember context. they, I think around the time Ilya Kazan won the award, they asked Paul Newman how he felt about him winning. And I, I always remember he said, uh, it's very easy now to say what you would have done back then. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, as I was making the film, I said to myself, you know, it's easy to be a hero when you're not under oath. And, and what is it? Uh, you're, not, you're, you're not chained to, a, to a, a radiator in some room someplace. It's easy for me to go back now and say, oh, I would never do that. But you don't really know what you would or wouldn't do in those circumstances. Well, to go back to what you said a moment ago, he was vilified as a villain, but he was a victim too. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, you, could, you could be um, a big, big hero, you know, 20 years later in the safety of, uh, of uh, where we are today. And, uh, well, I don't know that we're that safe, but... Uh, <laughs> It could happen again. Yeah, uh, but uh, uh, we, they were all victims to some extent. Yeah, and, and it also 
uh, with the House of Un-American Activities, they had one of the crimes was, I think it was called premature anti-fascist. Yeah, well, I guess. That, that it was like you were against Hitler before you, it was before you should have been. Right. Well, that's what a lot of those, that, that was the nature of a lot of those meetings that yeah. those people had attended. Yeah, absolutely. But by the time, it, at that point, Hitler was fighting uh, Russia, but then Hitler made a deal with Russia. Right. And then they were, then they broke the deal. So <laughs> you didn't know which, which side to be on. Victor Nafsky's book, by the way, Naming the Names. Naming Names is a great book. Great yeah. book if, yeah. if our listeners yeah. want to read more about it at this, this tragic period. Yeah. We had Josh Mustel here, too, Zero's Mustel's oh, really? son. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, there's the... the, the well, Zero was blacklisted, yeah. Sure, yeah. sure. Oh, and then another horrible time... He's in the front. ...during the Depression, uh, and that's where uh, they shoot horses, don't they? From one from one depressing period yeah. to another <laughs> depressing period. That is a wonderful movie. Thank you, yeah. It, it it's, it's a picture of where America was during the throes of the Depression and what people would do just to survive. And the dance marathons were where people would come in and the the question was who would survive this grueling being on your feet for, you know, 22 mm-hmm. hours a day uh, for how long you could last. And the ones that last won, and usually they deducted the cost of towels like they did in a boxing uh, arena. Uh, and uh, uh, it was terrible. And, and uh, the script, uh, which really was based, which was great, based on a Harris McCoy short novel. Uh, Jane Fonda uh, was brilliant in the movie. She was that sort of a turning point for her? I think so. She yeah, was well, playing sex well, kittens and she, and she well, was Well, yeah, when we comedy. met, she was living in Paris with her husband at the time, Roger Vadim, yeah. uh, and doing... Barbarella. Uh, Barbarella. And, yeah. uh, and she was doing light comedy before yeah. that. And, and then this was, this she was did Barefoot in the Barefoot Park in the before Park. that. Yeah. And we kind of, you know... She she jumped in and really lived the part, moved on the uh, Warner Brothers lot where we shot and really lived that part and then became really a very active uh, uh, anti-Vietnam advocate. Uh, And she's quite, and to this day, she's quite a a great woman. That cast is perfect. Every part. Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern, uh, uh, Bonnie Bedelia. Bedelia. And Gig Young. Of course, Gig Young. Gig Young won Academy Awards. Won the Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. The culture always portrayed dance marathons almost like it was something whimsical, like stuffing a phone booth or or swallowing goldfish. (laughs) But you realize the the sadism. You realize the, the, the terrible things that were done. To exploit these like people, they were. It was like watching uh, gladiators. There's yeah. in a way yeah. precursor yeah. of reality t- reality shows. Yeah, yeah, like just you were watching people uh, being tortured, and the only way out and of humiliated. And in, in, uh, that's where the title comes from. The only, you know, at one point, Jane Fonda's character finally says to Michael Saracen, who is her partner in dancing, and says, "Do me a favor here, shoot me, kill me." She doesn't have the nerve to even shoot herself. Um, and uh, but it, it's a film that got I think nine Academy Awards and uh, nominations. Young and, Sidney uh, Pollock. Sidney Pollock won yeah. his, his first really yeah. big movie and a wonderful director, a wonderful man. Everybody's great. Every Gig and, Young though. Gig Young won Academy oh, Awards. Terrific. Another guy who well, what a tragic life that he had. Tragic he, life. But he you know he he murdered his wife and then committed suicide. Yes. 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 Yeah. But he's a he's a villain a little bit in the picture. 
but he's also a victim. He's a pathetic yeah. character. Yeah. He can't. He can't get out of. He can't get out of this 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 prison. I and, read. Go ahead, Gil. Oh no, I was just. We were talking yesterday that even if you won, you didn't win. And In many there cases, there was nothing to win. Before. Yeah. By the time, by the time you won, you were dead, really, for all intents and purposes. Because if you weren't physically dead, you were emotionally dead. It had drained every ounce of emotion out of you. And there was really no money. No, very little money. Yeah. There were a lot of promises, but almost no money. Because what could you do after you finally survived? The guy would leave town usually, the gig young character, and go on to the next town and put it. Another show on. These were desperate people that were starving and yes. would often do it for the lunch. Exactly. For the, for the exactly. meal or just to get out of the elements, yes. get yes. out of the bed, get out of yes. the, the snow. Yeah. I mean, it's terrible. There is a good in joke there, though. There is the, the Winkler Travel Agency. Oh. It's, 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 uh, it's one get of the sponsors. Of get out of town quick. <laughs> <laughs> you, snuck, you snuck that in there. I, I, you know what? I didn't know that that was still in there. It's I mean, in I, there. I look I for it. A, I'm a... I'm 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 anal I retentive, really, okay. well, so I look for it. <laughs> okay. I read that somebody that the film was shown in Russia. I hope this isn't bullshit because it's fun. The film was shown in Russia as as a propaganda to to uh, to I highlight don't. the evils of American capitalism. You know what? I had never heard that before, but they probably never paid us for the film. Probably <laughs> 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 it was a bootleg print. <laughs> Can we just talk about the old days a little bit, too? Because I just want to get to Elvis. I want to get how you got from the boardwalk to the William Morris mailroom. By the way, George Shapiro was here on the oh, podcast. Oh, really? Oh, old... He was in the mailroom with me at William Morris. Yeah. I know. He and, and Bernie Jerry Weintraub. and Jerry Weintraub, yeah. yeah. I guess we missed out on. But you, So you guys were all in there with yeah. with, uh, with big dreams. Yes. And, and no resources. Big dreams and no money. Yeah. <laughs> And you find yourself uh, producing a movie with Julie Christie or being involved. I was invo very involved with her doing Dr. Zhivago. Right. And that brought me to the attention of the uh, chief executive at MGM at the time, a man by the name of Robert O'Brien. And uh, we had a very, very complicated negotiation. A lot of things happened. And at one day he said to me, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think I, I need some young producers out in Hollywood. We got all these old guys out there and... They really, uh, they're not up to times. And he said, get a script, and if I like it, I'll make you a producer. I said, well, yeah, we don't have any scripts. And sure enough, a couple of days later, his head of production, a, 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 a very, very nice guy, called and said, you know, Erwin, uh, we have a script here that we think will be a perfect script for Julie Christie. He said, however, we can't get Mr. O'Brien to read the scripts. He's got a pile on his desk and he never reads anything. We can't get anything done <laughs> because he won't okay anything until he reads the script, but he's not going to read it. But he wants to be in business with you. So why don't I send you the script? You give it to my boss and maybe he'll read it because he won't read it from me. So I read the script. It was okay, not great. Uh, but I call Mr. O'Brien. I said, Mr. O'Brien, I have this script. We think it'd be really good for Julie Christie. We'd like to do it with Julie Christie. We think she might be interested. Would you read the script? He said, sure, send it over. A couple of days later, he calls me. He said, listen, uh, uh, I don't think I want to do it with Julie Christie. I said, no, that's too bad. He said, but, you know, I've got another idea. I said, what is that? He said, how about doing it with Elvis Presley instead of Julie Christie? <laughs> <laughs> so like I, said, Let me, I said, let me ask you a question. <laughs> I said, the script I gave you with Julie Christie and Tom, you want to do now with Elvis Presley? <laughs> 
<laughs> he says, yeah, what do you think about that idea? I said, that's the best idea I ever heard. That's <laughs> the right and answer. And he said, how quickly can you get out to Hollywood? <laughs> now it is. And you weren't impressed by the colonel. No, the colonel, yeah. when I came, I said, Ooh. I said, what do we, you've got to rewrite the script, you know? He said, uh, we'll get somebody. Don't, don't, don't come to me with your New York ways, which was Jewish ways. Oh, yes. Sure. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and, and then they, 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 and it was still at old MGM Studios out yeah. in Culver City, and they had a whole way of doing things. And they said, now your director is Norman Torog. I said, don't I get, the, your director is Norman Torog. And I was, didn't know really anything about it. I'd never been on a Hollywood soundstage. I, I was a kid, and I didn't know what was going on. So, but I did say, I said, I'd like to meet the director. So they said, okay, be at the steps of the Thalberg building, which was the executive building at AMGM lot, uh, tomorrow at noon, and we'll have the director there, and you'll meet him and greet him and get to know him. Then, okay, next day at 12 noon, I'm standing on the steps with an executive from MGM, and a car drives up, and it's kind of like a, a Chevy or a Buick, I don't even know, but a kind of a, like a car that's like seven or eight years old, but there's a, a driver, a sh- not a real chauffeur, but a driver, and the guy gets out of the car and he runs around and he opens the door on the passenger side to help this elderly gentleman out of the car. And then he helps the man up to the steps where I'm standing. So I'm then introduced that this is your director, this is Norman Torog. And now I have no idea what to say to the guy. It's like, you set up a meeting and then I, I don't, I'm, I'm lost for words. So I say, the first thing that comes to mind, I said, it's nice that you, you know, you got a chauffeur and all that. And all. he says, well, I really prefer to drive myself, but I can't drive. I said, well, why not? He said, well, I'm blind in one eye. <laughs> oh my God. And I'm going blind in the other eye. <laughs> I said, I said, wait a minute. I got a script here that was for Julie Christie. I'm doing it with Elvis Presley. I have a director that's half blind. I'm shooting in Culver City instead of France where it was set. <laughs> Making it look like France I said, I got I got to do better than this my next time out. <laughs> that movie was double trouble. <laughs> that's right. In case our listeners are wondering. I also love the story in the book. You said that they would the, his handlers would throw Elvis on the on the floor no, of the car. Was, throw blankets a, on him. There were two things about Elvis. For, there were three things. Number one. When it came to acting, he was like uncomfortable, but he did it. He, he, he knew his lines. He was always on time. He was really a gentleman, and he was personally a gentleman. And I, I liked him an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And when we did the music, he was really great. He had everybody come, and pizza was flowing, and beer, and it was really a party, and he was very serious about his music, and that was great. But when it came to acting, it was a whole different story. But there was one day that was put into the script where he cuts... He, he does a karate chop on a board. And everybody showed up that day. into karate. His friends, his girlfriends, the executives from the studio, the colonel came. And, and it was right before lunch, and he, he gives it a whack, and the board breaks, and everybody claps and all. If you blew on it, it would have broken. It was so prepared, you know. That, <laughs> And everybody, so everybody was happy with that, and they all had a celebratory lunch about that. And then the sad part was every day when he left the MGM lot, uh, the two guys who were really nice, the two, two of his close friends, Shorty and Red, uh, who were terrific, uh, and uh, they were the ones that were really close to him, and they would drive out a lot, and they would say, okay, Elvis, now get down. And he would get down on the floor of the car, and they would cover him with a blanket. 
so that the crowd outside the gates of MGM wouldn't rush the car. But the sad thing was there was nobody there anymore. That's wild. Oh, there was that's nobody wild. there. The crowd either, had gone home. Either he didn't know or he didn't want to know yeah. or they didn't want him to know, but there was nobody there. But he was under the carpet. Wild. Oh. Yeah. Wild. A long way from Julie Christie. Long way. Sh- shooting in Europe. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Okay, it's my job here to bring up all the bad pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so far, you're doing a, good a great soon. job. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the gang that couldn't shoot. Straight. I don't think that's a bad picture. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 uneven. Well, yeah. look, what happened in the gang yeah. that couldn't shoot? That we had a terrific book about by Jimmy Breslin about the, the 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 mob and crazy Joe Gall and what was going on in Brooklyn in the in the early seventies or late sixties. We hired Waldo Salt, who wrote and won an Academy Speaking Award of the for, blacklist. For, for Midnight Cabaret and was blacklisted. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're looking for a director because we had this really good book and a really good script. So the an agent calls me and said, What about Francis Coppola? I said, Francis Coppola? Uh, he said, yeah. I said, well, let me look. And he, he, the previous film he did was Finian's Rainbow with Fred Astaire, a musical. Mm-hmm. So I called the agent. I said, why in the world would you suggest Francis Coppola to do a gangster movie? <laughs> wow. That's the worst idea I ever heard. <laughs> That's what we were referring to in the intro. <laughs> so so I, I didn't hire him. <laughs> So we, we did hire Al Pacino for the lead role when we got another director. And then I got a call one day from uh, Al Pacino's agent who said, you know, Al Pacino is leaving your movie. He's not going to do it. I said, Where, where's he going? I said, what do you have? Well, he's in rehearsal. He said, he's going to do The Godfather with Francis Coppola. <laughs> <laughs> you end that chapter by saying, I haven't seen The Gang That Should... That since should, then. Since then. But I, I saw The Godfather a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what would you do? You looked at Finian's, Finian's Rainbow. Rainbow. Why would and, you hire Francis And you're a big boy now. That's all he had yeah, done. That's it. Why would you hire that's Francis all he done. to do a gangster movie? Yeah. You can't be blamed for not uh, for making that call. Did Jerry Orbach was, was, was hanging out with Crazy Joe Gallo? No, what happened was Jerry Orbach, who is a wonderful man, by the way, a really yeah. terrific actor and a lovely, lovely guy. Did you meet him at the Friars, Jerry Orbach? Uh, I, He's a sweet guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I met him a couple him of times. times. He was really lovely he played He played Crazy Joe Gallo in the movie, mm-hmm. or Crazy Joe Gallo. So in order to do the uh, uh, the character, he wanted to do some research and called actually called up Joe Gallo, and they became really, really great friends. Joe Gallo and Jerry Obeck became friends. Their wives became friends. Uh, and on Crazy Joe Gallo's birthday, they all went to the Copa, uh, uh, Jerry Obeck and his wife and Joe Gallo and his wife, uh, to hear Don Rickles at the Copacabana. And what happened was Jerry Obeck and his wife left after the uh, show went over, and Joe Gallo and his wife went with some friends to celebrate his birthday down to... Um, I think it was Umberto's. Umberto's Clam House. Yeah. In, and in walked a guy who is called the Irishman who then puts a bullet in his head. So Joe Gallo gets killed the night after that by the Irishman, which brings us to my latest movie called The Irishman. Nice segue, Irwin. Wow. Done like a producer. <laughs> 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 two, 
things there before you, we jump to the Irishman, but it's a good thing that Jerry excused himself for the night and didn't decided uh, yeah, not to go down he, to the clam bar. been there, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. talk about the Irishman. That, yeah. that sounds like a ridiculous cast. Well, the I, Irishman? Yeah. I mean, Ridic- just by how great. Oh, yeah. It, we, I mean, it's Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, of course, Bob De Niro, Ray Romano, um, it's it's a great Har- and Harvey Keitel. Oh, Harvey's in it too, Keitel. right? Yeah. How'd you get Pesci off the golf course? Uh, you know what? It was the personal relationship he had with Bob mostly. Uh-huh. Of course, Bob and him were very very close since the days of Raging Bull, and uh, he. Uh, it was kind of a we all looked it upon as a kind of a, a how we reunited because I had done like seven or eight pictures with Scorsese as a as a Directed, I directed him as an actor because he was in the, in in, in uh, uh, Guilty by Suspicion. He was an actor. He was an actor in Round Midnight. Was a jazz movie I made, uh, and uh, I all the movies we made together: Wolf of Wall Street, New York, New York, and all those movies. And uh, uh, he uh, he he said, "Let's do this together." And then, so I had this long relationship with him. Then I had this long relationship with Al. Pacino going back to us doing author or author together, which sure. is a very funny, marvelous film. Like that picture. And, I'm sorry I didn't put it in the intro. And and Revolution, which is not. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then was uh, 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 Bob, who I'd done Gang the Could to Shoot Straight, New York, New York, True Confessions, Raging Bull, Two Confessions, Goodfellas. Guilty by Suspicion and Night in the City. City. So we had done a lot together. So it was like the coming together of all you know, all of us, and 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 um, so it, it was very comfortable. And the film came out really, really great. I think it's going to be one of the most important uh, films of the year, and it's probably one of the most uh, interesting and important gangster movies ever made. But it's more than a gangster movie. It's really about relationships. Um, and I, I'm, I'm particularly happy with it. Really, really happy. And what what made Joe Pesci drop out of acting? I think Joe just reached the point in his life where he didn't want to work so much. I mean, he he ended up doing it. Maybe other people never came to him with the same kind of script. But he loves to play golf, and he just didn't want to. He's kind of shy and and, and humble, isn't very, he? Very, very. I remember shy, his Oscar very, speech very was all of three words. Very shy. And interesting enough, the funniest guy is Al Pacino. Interesting. Was really, incredibly smart and really, really funny. Interesting guy, yeah. Let, let but me... I think, by the way, what drew everybody together was Bob De Niro. Bob had this passion for this project. He and Jane Rosenthal, and they really wanted to make it, and, and Bob was really on top of everybody to get it done. Really was. And everybody came in to Bob. Terrific. I, I want to ask you about a couple of other projects that you're still working on. Mm-hmm. You still you still determined to make that Gershwin picture? Yeah, we we I, I think we're going to do it this time. That's we, wonderful. John Carney, who uh, is a, a Welsh uh, filmmaker, who did a couple of interesting movies. He did uh, once, which became a oh, Tony yeah. Award winning play movie. on Broadway. He did another called Sing Street, which is coming to uh, Off Broadway next year. Um, Wrote a wonderful treatment that the Gershwin family approved of uh, that we're going to go into script on very nice. So that's a project that I've been involved with for 30-some-odd years. Yeah. I mean, I know you had Daniel Day-Lewis and Tom Hanks. That's right. For it one George point. and Ira, yeah. yeah. And uh, well, we couldn't get it done. So we're, we're on that. 
we're probably uh, uh, we're going to do it. I, I I came across a, a documentary about uh, a young man in West Virginia who got into a, a ski accident and had brain damage, and um, his parents couldn't do anything. I, I mean, they tried everything to to get him to to speak to function, and in desperation, they hired a music therapist. And for some strange reason, they also hired a documentary crew to follow him around. I don't know why they did it. And so I saw this documentary about how this, you actually see the moment when the music therapist gets this boy who can't eat, can't do anything, to blow into a little pipe um, or a little accordion, uh, a little uh, horn. And uh, you see the process. And at the end of four years, the young man graduates from high school and it's a wonderful story about Lovely. about how this music can, and I think there's something in how our brain re- operates and reacts to certain sounds, and music is one of them. You should see this documentary that Gilbert that uh, that Gilbert's featured in. Oh, life animated about a boy that didn't. it was about an autistic boy who couldn't communicate with his parents or anybody, and he was falling deeper and deeper into autism, and. He, but he was in love with Disney animated features. And one day his father put on a puppet on his, on his hand of my character, the parody Iago from Aladdin. And he started to imitate me. And his son had a conversation with the puppet. Really? Yeah. Like that was but a, a normal real- conversation, not an autistic conversation. Yeah, yeah, he had an actual conversation. He saw this as an old friend. Wow. Yeah, it drew him out. What's it called? Uh, Life Animated. Give it a look. I'm going to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so those are a couple of things we're working on. We're also working on Creed 3. Creed 3? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and jumping back to the blacklist, one funny story you told was about, I think it was Harry Warner. Oh, yeah. No, what happened is... uh, uh, I live um, in a house in Beverly Hills that was once owned by a, a film producer who was um, the son-in-law of Harry Warner. Uh, and during the blast- blacklisting period, he called his son-in-law and said, uh, I understand you're involved with communists. And he said, no, no, Harry, uh, I belong to the Young Anti-Communist League. And he said, I don't care what kind of communist you are, get out. <laughs> <laughs> Now my other favorite topic, Nazis. Oh, you're going to ask about Music Box? Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that, how that came about. Well, actually, it's a, a, a lot of coincidence there, which I, I documented in, in, in the book, because it's almost unbelievable. What happened is I read in the paper at, uh, some years ago um, about this auto worker who uh, came from uh, Germany, or came from, yeah, Germany, uh, and was being accused by the Justice Department of being uh, falsifying his application for citizenship. And they had found that uh, he was a concentration camp guard called Ivan the Terrible, by the way. So I, I had done a very film that I was very proud of uh, 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 with Deborah Winger, by the way, called Betrayed, about the infiltration of the right-wing uh, uh, militant group. And Joe had written a very good script. So I said to Joe, why don't we do Joe Westerhouse. Why don't we do a film about this kind of man who is 
a grandfather who has brought up his children in America, seems like a perfect citizen, but yet we don't know that much about our parents. The background is he was a, a killer. He murdered thousands and thousands of Jews. So Joe said, you know, that's a good idea, and he wrote the script, and we made the film with Jessica Lange playing the, mother, the, the, the daughter who is a lawyer by the and defends her father and then finds out he actually did all these horrible things. Uh, so two years or three years after the film is finished, Joe Astenhouse writes me a letter, which I reprinted in the book in its full, because it's almost like his father, and Joe lives in Cleveland, by the way, his father is accused of being uh, a Nazi during the Second World War and involved in Hungary in the murder of many, many Jews and other people uh, during the Second World War. Incredible. So it's the same story, but years later, and he had no idea, and, in, and he wrote me this letter telling me that this has happened to the Justice Department. He never wanted to speak to his father again. Uh, the, he, they had the proof that his father was this terrible person, and it was his loving father that he, and as it turned out, his father passed away before they uh, uh, deported him. But that's wow. an incredible story. It's, li- it's life imitating yeah. art. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Good film, by the way. Very good. So film. is Betrayed. Uh, yeah. And wasn't it supposed to be that you you wanted Sidney Pollack to direct it? But he no, I wa- wanted Sidney Pollack to direct the right stuff. Yeah. And but, uh, oh no, but I thought there was something that you wanted Pollock with uh, the music box, but he wanted a happy ending. No, oh, that's a different Pollock. That yeah, was oh, the studio head. Oh, yeah. okay. It wasn't Sidney oh, Pollock. Oh, Tom Pollock. It was Tom oh, Pollock, okay. who was the head of Universal, <laughs> right, who said, right. yeah, I'll do the movie, but you have to have him be innocent. I said, what's the point of making the movie? <laughs> so a yeah. happy ending about a Nazi killer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, let's say to our listeners that music box is definitely one to watch. Yes, it, it is. Yeah. Thank you. And is, yeah. as is Betrayed. Both yes. directed by the same director, same as, uh, Costa, Costa Gavras. By the way, Costa Gavras told me a, an interesting story. Uh, I said to Costa once, why don't you do a kind of a romance or something? You really, you know, because he had a nice sense of humor and all that, and he had a great smile. And I said, you always do these political films. All of them, very heavy. He did Z sure. and some really, missing. really good, good and missing. Yeah. Uh, and really, really, I said, why don't you ever do a, why do you do all these political He said, I don't do political films. I said, what do you mean you don't do political films? <laughs> He said, I'll tell you what a political film is. He said, I grew up in a small town in Greece after the Second World War. We were poverty-stricken. But every Saturday, a man would troop up to the center of town with a can of film, and he'd put up a big white sheet in the center of town, and he'd show us, he was from MGM, and he showed us Singing in the Rain, or he showed us Anesta Williams' movie in full color. Wow. We looked at that, and we said, that's America? That's America? He said, that's a political film. Wow. Oh, when you think about it, think about the end of Second World War, poverty in your Greece town, and this is what you're seeing of America. You want to be there, you want to love, and America is still the outpost of great, great freedom. I got into a cab uh, just two days ago, and, and, and I don't know why the guy's talking, what do you do, and all that, and I didn't, I never tell him what I do, but... The guy said, uh, he said to me, I said, well, where do you come from? Because he had a little accent. He said, I come from Guyana. I said, well, how long have you been here? He said, 32 years. I said, how long have you been driving a cab? Oh, he said, I've been doing it for 32 years. I said, well, you have a, you know, everything good? He said, yeah, I have two, two of my, my two daughters. I've got twins. They're going to college. 
And he said, America is the greatest place in the world. He said, I have, I support my blind brother in Guyana. I send my two girls to college. He said, America is the greatest. And I drive this cab and I make a living. I send my daughters to college and I support my blind brother. It was a wonderful story That's about nice. America. That's nice. About an immigrant, by sure. the way. I try to, I try to engage with cab drivers because yeah. you always get, you yeah. always get an interesting yeah. story. What, um, I got a question for you about the right stuff. Why didn't John Glenn like the way uh, Wolf portrayed him in the novel? And did you have to, uh, well, he, Ed Harris was, had some pressure on him playing that not part. Not only that, what happened was he was such an important senator. As a matter of fact, he was, you know, talking about running for president. Sure. He didn't like the point. His, his, I don't know why. I thought we portrayed him as a great He still American. didn't like no. it even. It, didn't oh, like it. it. As a matter of fact, he went to the, the, we had gotten the approval of the Defense Department to use Edwards Air Force Base and to use a, a, an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. And they were very cooperative because they loved Tom Wolf's book. He went to them and put a lot of pressure on them to withdraw permission. And they did. And, Bob Chardoff got on a plane and went to Washington, spoke to the, like a, just a bureaucrat, and got him to agree in spite of the pressure from a, a, yeah. know, the head of, and he was the head of some important committee, yeah. uh, Glenn, and the guy just thought that was the right thing to do and took all the pressure and he did, he said, I want to do this. One of the things, produ- one of the other things producers do. Yes. <laughs> Amongst, uh, yeah. And, yeah, putting and, out fires. And another favorite topic that I that I used all my strength to hold off is Sharon Stone's pussy. Oh, wow. you're ta- oh, you're talking about how you didn't want to make Basic Instinct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she she wasn't involved in it when I uh, when I was shortly involved in it. Um, what happened was I Joe Joe Esterhouse, who wrote it uh, asked me to get involved, and I did. And then they brought in a uh, director that I didn't like and didn't like me because I was now directing myself. And I think he was very nervous about me. And then he came to my house with Joe Esterhouse and he told me what he was going to do with, uh, with the nudity and full, full, full frontal nudity. And he was going to show sex scenes how they've never been shown before. And at one point I said to him, you know what? I'm going to go upstairs to my bathroom. I'm going to take a shower because I really feel dirty. <laughs> <laughs> and when I come down and I'm all clean, I'd like you to be gone. And he left and then I withdrew from the film. So you weren't around for uh, no, no. He was, was he withdrew was he withdrew from the picture. Yeah, I withdrew before Sharon Stone came around. Yeah. but she did a really good job. I mean, yeah, became a star. Marty Scorsese thought she, in, in Casino she was absolutely great. Yeah, she was She's a fine actress. She fine was actress. Yeah. yeah, I just want to ask about uh, somebody who comes up in the book and somebody who Gilbert interacted with a little bit, and that's your friend Alan King. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. Because I want to go back just a second just to give this context, too. In the mailroom days, when you were at William Morris, one of your jobs was going, was being a professional clapper. That's right. And I, worked, <laughs> I worked on the Buddy wow. Hackett and the Walter Winter Show. Well, the Buddy Hackett Show. He used, to go sit in, oh! he used to go sit in the audience. Yeah, I used to sit in the audience and play, I would get five bucks for clapping. <laughs> Half hours worth of clapping, you know, it was five right. bucks. And was was it you or your partner Bob that was that was handling Jackie Mason? Bob Chartoff was, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, and but you got to know Alan. I got to know Alan. I cast him in uh, 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 Author Author. Yeah. That was the first yep, time. Yep. Um, and then he worked at Night in the City for me. But we became very very good friends. And uh, it's interesting, Alan. Uh, came to stay with us uh, when he was very sick and he was he had cancer and he was going to die but he had a he he had a part in the movie and he came out to LA and uh, 
he was a wonderful, wonderful man. He was a renaissance man. He was a comedian, funny, an actor. Funny man. He was a great tennis player, a great golfer. He could do everything. So anyhow, so he was staying at, at the guest house. We have a small guest house uh, next to my house. And he and Jeanette were staying at the guest house. And they walked from the guest house over to my house. We had a little dinner party in his honor. And he could hardly make it because the cancer was so terrible. And Jeanette had to help him walk in. And as he approached the dining room and all the friends were sitting there, Alan threw his shoulders back and his chest out and walked in like there was nothing in the world wrong with him. It was just wonderful wow. to see this man and so brave and so uh, wonderful, uh, engaging. I never forgot that picture of Alan putting them walking in like an actor and, it's a and nice story he, so i guess he was like like a lot of those actors who are near death but if you yell action that's right they they, they give you action they, they tough they it out for him yeah, yeah. They, he turned out to be a good him. actor he's in that lumet picture with ali mcgraw oh, he's funny yeah, in it. he was very Just tell good. me what yeah, you yeah, want yeah, and yeah. and he's in a, a favorite of mine uh bye bye braver another lumet oh movie. yeah yeah one time i there was some big show at lincoln center with a bunch of comics and alan king was the mc and i went on stage i performed and you know i i'm walking off to applause and I'm wearing like a, you know, a sweatshirt and jeans and sneakers. And Alan King comes back to the mic, <laughs> looking at me walk off stage. And he goes, you know, when I go on stage, I wear a suit and tie, neatly pressed. My hair is coiffed. And then he comes out. Looking like he rolled around in shit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, we're going to let you out of here, Erwin, but tell us one oh, story. Go two, ahead. You, two got, things. you got more. Well, this is, this is the mo no, most note taking he's done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by Peter Bogdanovich. Right. Yeah. Peter Bogdanovich, we had a really, really terrific script called Starlight Parade. Peter Bogdanovich rewrote, rewrote it uh, uh, called uh, Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon. So uh, I walked on the set, and he there was Peter Bogdanovich directing on a horse. And I said, what the heck are you doing on a horse? And I said, uh, you know, I think the actors might feel a little uncomfortable, you. Uh, he said, well, John Ford directed uh, all his movies on a horse. And I said... You're not John Ford, and that horse is not John Ford's horse. <laughs> That's a, per a perfect answer. I want to say about the book too. One of the one of the the best parts of the book for me was that you you went to the trouble of putting in the back of the book all the movies you never made. Yeah, yeah, a, a, an impressive list. I mean, this Warren Beatty, Lillian yeah, Hellman yeah, project yeah, where you have yeah. this very funny story, The Tempest, written by Ray Bradbury. There's an F. Scott Fitzgerald yeah, movie. Yeah. We should have Jay Cox on the show, by oh, the way. He's, he's great. Yeah. Is he yeah, in New York? He's, huh? Is he in New York? Oh, yeah, he lives oh, here. Oh, yeah. we got to get Jay yeah. Cox. The Bob Fosse. In fact, Fosse. I'm having lunch with him Thursday. I, if you're Please, serious, we'd love to have him. him. The Busby yeah. Berkeley movie uh, yeah. that you talked to Fosse about. Yeah. I mean, it's... Well, a yeah, movie but, lover's dream just to read just these, to read the books and movies I didn't these dream yeah. projects. Didn't Busby Berkeley killed someone in his car. Yes, he did. He was drunk and he he got into an automobile and drove over on the Pacific Coast Highway and killed somebody. And when he was on trial, they made him direct his movies at night. 
He was on trial for murder during the day, and he was incredible on, and, and working at night making movies at, at the Warner Brothers lot. Jeez, yeah. This and, is this is a favorite actor of ours, and we're going to squeeze in if you have one story about the great Burgess Meredith. Yes. Well, or just a memory. Uh, just, I more a memory because he was a really really lovely man and a great actor. And uh, what happened was. Uh, we had auditioned a lot of actors so, to play that role, and we didn't have any money, and nobody, everybody turned us down, and Burgess came in, he read the script, and he said, you know, I'll do it, you don't have to pay me, just buy me a couple of good bottles of wine, because he loved, he was a wine connoisseur. And so ba basically, and he got nominated for an Academy Award, and we did two more movies, and we would have kept him on forever, but he was getting ill, Yeah. And uh, but he was a wonderful man. Uh, I can only say nice things about him. And happily, he was just warm, talented, uh, supportive. He gave Sly a lot of help. He gave John Avelson a lot of help. All of us. All of us a lot of help. And, I don't think uh, that man ever gave a bad performance in never, anything. And never. completely committed. He cared about everything he did. Cared about everything. He was the consummate actor. Gilbert loves Of Mice and Men with, with oh, Chaney yeah. Jr., oh, yeah. which we talked about great, all the time. Great movie. Also, what, G.I. Joe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh so many. Yeah. So many. He directed yeah. a good movie called Which The Man one? on the Eiffel Tower. Oh, did he? Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. And he was married to Paulette Goddard, so we'll give, points, we'll give him points for that. I'll give him points for that right away. <laughs> I also want to recommend to our listeners Life as a House, which we didn't get to. Thank you. But, uh, but another labor of love for you, another Thank another you, personal yeah. picture. Yeah. And yeah. it's very it's very sweet. Thank you. And very well done, and everybody's good in it. Thank you. You know. Kevin Klein's another guy who can do no wrong. I know on that screen, he's, he was wonderful and very supportive. And then we, after that, we did the Lovely together. Also the good Porter story, which I, I really love. There's so many that we didn't get. To. I would have loved to talk about True Confessions. Well, and, we'll come back sometime. I would love to have you back anytime, <laughs> but we're going to plug the book. Well, thank Gil, you. Gil, give the book, okay. give the bigger book plug. We'll we'll let this man get to dinner. Ah, uh, stories from. 50 Years in Hollywood, A Life in Movies. Irwin, this was a... Irwin Winkler. A treat, Thank you, it a comes treat. out May 7th. May 7th, right. and The Irishman, when can we see The Irishman? Well, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys very, very much. You are an entertaining pleasure. fellow. Thank you. Thank and you. And thanks for the years and years of entertainment. Thank you. And this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, with my co-host Frank Santopadre, our engineer Frank Verderosa, and a guy who's made a lot of bad movies for a great <laughs> producer. <laughs> Thank you. And some great ones. Yeah, I but the great ones way outnumber any failures. Uh, the great and legendary Erwin Winkler. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Erwin.
Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fotiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 